For sensitive listeners and children, this episode contains accounts of graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. Ripple Puddle. Welcome to Ripple Puddle. Welcome to Ripple Puddle. Rip, rip, rip. Ripple Puddle. Ripple Puddle. Breathe out. Breathe in. You're listening to Episode 3, Spill Your Guts. I'm Carla Taylor. And I'm Stephanie Hafer. Take a deep breath in for a count of five, filling your lungs fully. Now hold your breath for five seconds. Now release your breath for five counts. As you breathe out, feel your guts as though you are going down a great big hill on a roller coaster. Hold your breath for five counts. Continue to do this five more times. Have you ever thought about all the things your gut does for you outside of digestive functions? Your guts, also known as the enteric nervous system, works symbiotically with the brain. And when you think about the fact that 95% of serotonin, serotonin is a chemical created by the human body that works as a neurotransmitter. It is regarded by some researchers as a chemical that is responsible for maintaining mood balance and that a deficit of serotonin leads to depression. <clears throat> As I was saying, 95% of serotonin production takes place in the gut. It kind of all makes sense, doesn't it? Using your gut helps you let go of the things that no longer serve you. Following your guts means you're listening to and trusting your body. Your gut holds all of your primal, predatory information. Are you listening to it now? We are going to take your guts on a roller coaster. Let yourself go. Pay attention and remember to breathe. Ready to eavesdrop in? What is that thing you want more than anything else in the world? Listen closely to what your body tells you. Can you stomach it? Because the truth lives not in your head or heart, but in your gut. Here is Carla Taylor. I've always wanted to climb Mount Everest. I never want to climb Mount Everest. It's the kind of thought that keeps me alive, keeps me wondering. In my mind, I've stayed at base camp and adjusted to the oxygen levels. I've eaten what the Sherpas cook. I've fallen in love with a yak named Toby and slept in the wrenching chill that splits your soul wide open. Who is this person that risks life and limb to stand at the summit? Who is this that shimmies across horizontal ladders, bridging gaps above hundred-foot crevasses of ice? Who is it that walks past the dead and dying, to stand tall above the clouds? I imagine it to be like a god, a creature from Greek mythology, fighting against the man in the sky that blows curly, cloud-like circles of angry wind. Because how dare she stand so close to heaven? Sometimes, in the middle of the night, I awake to the sudden terror of being trapped on a vengeful mountain. One that keeps me at its breast, long enough to throw me. I worry that my oxygen has been tapped, 
and pulmonary embolism will take this desire, this wild, wild courage to stop dead. And then what would I be? Wrong on the primary principle that defines me, that desire defeats biology. And I'm scared. Struck to paralysis that keeps me every march from joining the group of climbers. Because if I did make it to base camp, I fear it would be like standing at the precipice of this life and the great beyond. Just one push or a seismic moment of courage could take over. And then I would fly. You've got courage and you've got bravery, both of which take guts. I see bravery more as an individual act, whereas courage is more selfless, done on behalf of others. Here's J-Bone's story. Well, I learned some interesting things over the years about keeping an eye on people, knowing what's going on, and, you know, I was trying to do what's right. In one particular time, uh, a guy I knew who lived in my neighborhood, lived in my apartment building, one floor down from me. He was a, you know, a weirdo. But I knew him because of proximity mainly, and... You know, one of those arm length type of people, but I would I would engage with them, someone I would talk to from time to time. Over the course of about a year of knowing him in this apartment that I lived in over on Wayne State's campus, he turned out to be a real creep. I worked at Wayne State, and uh, reading the Wayne State newspaper, I would read different uh, uh crime sections, just to know what's going on, you know, in my spare time. This was the summertime, and uh, the area would clear out from students not being there over the summer courses, but the neighborhood was still there, so I knew a lot of people. And I guess where I lived, I had a pretty good idea of who was who. And when I read this one particular day in the crime section of the newspaper about a kidnapping and a raping of two women by a description of a guy that they put out there in the newspaper based on where it was described that they were taken and where they were kidnapped from and then as well returned to made me just start thinking, well, who in this neighborhood would do that? And as I read the description, I thought to myself, that kind of sounds like... (gasps) And so I thought about it but for maybe about a minute and just you know stirred it around in my mind but was still compelled enough to pick up the the phone in the office and call the Wayne State cops and say you know hey uh I read this in in the newspaper about uh you know the the, the school newspaper in the crime section about this kidnapping and this raping and they're like yeah I said well the description sounds like this guy I know, and I gave him the name. And uh, they said, okay, we'll, we'll look into it. And, All right, fine, and, you know, hung up. A couple hours later, I get off of work and uh, walk across campus home. As I'm a block away, I see a big, you know, nice gaggle of cars, cop cars. Not, I mean, there's some cop cars and then some detective cars, but there was a lot of them. There was like 20 
And as I get closer, I notice they're at my apartment building. And as I'm about half a block away, I notice they're kind of looking at me. About six of them come surround me, and they're like, uh, thanks for the tip. And I'm like, what do you mean? And they're like, yeah, it was exactly who you said it was. So, yeah, we've got uh, a, lot of, a lot of things against this particular person. They wouldn't tell me. They wouldn't disclose what it was. But they uh, they did confirm that he was a really, really bad guy. That was the last I saw of him. My apartment manager, he was an ex-cop, so he knew a lot of the guys who were there. And, you know, he kind of gave me a little rundown, and he was kind of a, a hard ass. He'd see me every now and then, and he'd say, You're still alive? <laughs> And uh, the reason behind that is because one day I'm in class a couple weeks later. And it's about a month later. And I got a, I got a page. 911 urgent. And it's for my father. So I excuse myself out of class and I go to a payphone and I call my father and I'm like, hey, uh, what's going on? And he says, who's that? And I just froze. I said, well, he's uh, he's the guy I kind of called the police on because he fit the description of this rapist. And they said it was him. Why are you asking? He said, well, I just got a call from your apartment manager. And he got a call from the police, and they said to tell him, to tell you that he's broken loose off of a tether that they had him on, and they don't know where he is, and he knows you ratted him out, and he's looking for you. I made a phone call, found a way to get a hold of something to protect myself. I ended up putting in an application to get a pistol license, a purchasing permit. Um, Took about a month, and I was granted a purchasing permit, got myself a pistol. Pretty much spent that whole summer avoiding said perpetrator, and about a month into this whole ordeal, he got picked up in Missouri in a car that he had stolen from a, with a with a pistol that he had stolen from a woman that he had beat up and raped and they gave him 30 fucking years and he'll be out in probably 10 and he'll be about 70 and I still got my motherfucking pistol If you're feeling cranky ever or like cynical, the best thing to do is come up with your goofy asshole voice. 
which you can refer back to. So, like, for me, if I'm somewhere and I'm, like, and the thought that's going through my head is, like, oh, my God, what this person's saying is, like, so annoying. Then what I have to do is, like, say that out loud in my goofy asshole voice and, like, make it make it very silly that I'm thinking that. Like, call myself out on thinking that. So if that's going through my head and then I say... Oh my god, what this person says <laughs> And it's very hard to take it seriously after I actually say that out loud. This episode's hot tip is brought to you by Ryan Egensperger, a New York City sightseeing guide who studies history at Hunter College. Whether you live in the New York City area or are planning a trip there, consider taking a tour with Ryan. It's entertaining, informative, and often magical. You can find him at Sweet Streets Hospitality Club on Facebook. Do you ever dream of a counterintuitive love? A person you never imagined yourself with that helps you write your life story all the way to a happy ending? If your gut doesn't like it, it might just let you know. The hard way. Anna Ramirez tells her story. I was in college. It was my senior year. I had kind of broken up with my on-again, off-again boyfriend, who I was too stubborn to really recognize that I loved, but that I didn't really know then. I went on a date with this guy. He was at the business school at the University of Maryland, so you can already imagine kind of how he was. Preppy, polo shirts, the Sperry's, backpack, that really big attitude, getting in people's faces, but then pulling back and like thinking it was just being funny, being a jokester, being silly. For some reason, I really thought that that was attractive or interesting. Well, I also have a big personality, although mine was kind of pushed down because when two personalities that are pretty big or come together, it kind of causes a big explosion or causes one person to kind of bring it down. Him and I would pass each other in the halls. Maybe he thought I was kind of cute. We went out on a date. He lived in Fort Washington. It's an eternity from me. I lived in Maryland and Boyd, so it was so far. He came to pick me up from my house. I was still living at home. We went out, I was kind of nervous because I felt like maybe I wasn't his type. So I did my best. I straightened my hair, put on this top that at the time I thought was kind of cute, kind of fun. He knew the bartenders, he knew the, the people at the restaurant. We drove in his like 1990 Mercedes that was probably his dad's. We went to this really nice restaurant in Georgetown and it was kind of like, you know, special treatment. He he found a parking space right in front of the restaurant, like almost like it was reserved for him, but it just happened to be good luck. We go in, we get one of the best tables. I think off the bat, I just felt really disconnected. So I decided to trick myself silly because any 20 year old girl who's not really sure of herself would right because that makes total sense (laughs) after dinner which was okay we went to his friend's bar a guy that i actually knew and from there there was music i was able to sort of get into my own thing but still that feeling of disconnect was there i had one drink had another drink, had a shot because I, you know, wanted to prove I could hang. And I could hang, but not as long as I thought. I guess as the night went on, I realized that 
yeah, no, my liver can't really process all that much. And since I didn't eat that much during dinner, I mean, the whole storm came much faster. After a couple of cranberry vodkas and some weird green or blue shots, uh, the night got kind of hazy. I was outside getting some fresh air. And yeah, I was drunk. I just remember feeling like he wasn't really around, but maybe that's just because I like to go gallivant around by myself. Maybe it's because I was a drunk mess, but I went outside and I thought, oh my goodness, I don't feel well. I need to get behind this car because I, I felt all of my feelings, all of my anxiety, all of my dinner, and especially all of the drinks coming up. So I get behind what I thought was a car and just completely throw up, just vomit central everything out there and I couldn't hide. I couldn't hide mostly because <laughs> it was in front of the bar, not behind the car, in front of the bar, in front of him, in front of his friends, in front of the bouncer, all over my shoes, myself. And at that moment, that's where I black out. And he took me home. I'm, I'm not sure if he walked me inside of my house, but somehow I got inside into my bed. To this day, I'm not really sure what happened when I got home. I think he might have been a gentleman, even though he was kind of an a-hole. He took me inside because I just was not in good shape. I fell asleep, passed out. Next morning, I wake up fully clothed in my heels and just smelling so, so bad. I went to class on Monday and, well, as you could probably imagine, I actually didn't talk to him again. I was mortified and just avoided him at all costs. Well, that's where it all came out. That Saturday night, everything came out and there was nowhere I could hide. I like to play against my own intuition from time to time, just for the sake of spontaneity or in hope of tricking fate. Listening to your gut requires trust and not fearing that you will fall off the deep end of sanity. Without reason or excuse, that instinct can save your life. Larrabee tells her story. Listener discretion is advised. Growing up in New York City, I always had to be aware. You have to be aware of who's around you on the streets and you have to be aware of what's going on in your home, especially when you live in a home full of people who tend to be drunk or high or just generally erratic, which was my situation and the situation of a lot of people in New York, especially on the Lower East Side. And things like drug dealers and criminals those weren't foreign, frightening things to me. They were just, like Mr. Rogers says, people in our neighborhood. They really were. And there were very few times when I really felt I had to be afraid. But I always had to be aware. And I developed, at a very young age, the ability to very quickly take the temperature of a person a situation, a room, a conversation, an event. Sometimes, when I knew that something was going on, I could tell when it was really bad because my spider senses tingled. As a little kid, that's what I always called it. My spider senses are tingling. I'd get a funny tingling feeling that started just below my shoulder, 
on my arms and it would grow stronger and deeper and tingle more and more until it hit my chest and then I'd get out of the situation as soon as I could and this ability to sense things to sense danger served me really well and I think sometimes kept me alive as a teenager I sort of took up with a tawdry band of lunatics. We were just a pack of teenage girls running around the Lower East Side in skimpy clothes who all wanted to be crazy artists, which was completely normal at the time, so we didn't stand out. We were really, you know, one in a million. And it was uh, me, Janetto Stiletto. We called her that because she always wore combat boots. Uh, her sister Lorel, who played the bass, and a lovely Swedish ballerina who moved to New York City to dance on Broadway but ended up dancing on 6th Avenue in a topless bar called Billy's. And as we sort of go throughout our little creative, not so creative, mostly high lives on the Lower East Side, we come across all kinds of characters. And, you know, some of them weren't very nice and I just didn't want to hang out with them. And others were fantastic and interesting and vibrant and lively and kooky and writers, painters, singers, dancers, models, just everything. Everybody started moving in from all over the place. And Jeanette and Laurel were from New Jersey. And they grew up with a single mom, kind of a lower middle class background, but you know, they had food in the house and they pretty much knew what they were walking into when they came home. And my Swedish ballerina topless dancer friend grew up in a lovely semi-socialist environment where everything was very safe. So in that context, I was kind of the street smart one and I knew it. And I did kind of feel like it was a little bit my task to take care of them sometimes. Um, so one of the sort of people of the neighborhood that we knew was this guy named Daniel. And we knew him because Daniel um, used to get us really high on great marijuana in Tompkins Square Park. And at the time, this is before the Tompkins Square Park riots. So it was full of, uh, it was called Tent City. And it was full of these, you know, illegal ramshackle makeshift dwellings. They were, um, but they, they, some of them were quite nice. They, they had beds, they had electricity. They'd tap the uh, street lights in New York City, and they'd have electricity, and they'd had they'd have gas for their cooking, and um, you know we'd go in there, and we'd have you know hot dogs in their tent, and we'd smoke pot, and we'd hang out, and it was warm and cozy, and it was great, and you didn't have to tip the bartender, and we couldn't get into a bar anyway because we were just teenagers. But Daniel, when I met him, even though I did really want the pot because he got good pot. Set my spider senses tingling. He just did. But he never did anything wrong. And he never said anything strange. And he never made anyone else feel at all uncomfortable. But me, I was tingling. I was tingling throughout my entire body to the core of my chest. And I didn't want to smoke his pot. And I didn't want to go into his tent. And no one could understand why. And Jeanette 
and Laurel and my Swedish friend thought he was great because he knew all the constellations to the stars, which we could hardly see, so he could have been lying. And he got the greatest pot in New York. And they wanted to hang out with him all the time. Now, because Laurel played the bass and Jeanette was her sister, she decided that she was going to play drums. And, of course, my Swedish friend who wanted to dance on Broadway was focused on that as well. So we all sort of had art in common. I wanted to be a writer, and I always wanted to be a writer, and she wanted to be a dancer, and she wanted to play the bass, and she was going to learn the drums. And Daniel, even though we walked around that neighborhood in skimpy clothes at all hours of the morning, day and night, was going to walk Jeanette home from her drum lessons into our shared flat and smoke a joint with her in our apartment. And I didn't want that to happen because I couldn't be around him. I just knew that there was something wrong with Daniel. And my friends were angry at me. They didn't believe me that there was anything wrong with Daniel. They said, but he's so nice and he gives us pot and he never said anything and you have no proof. Whenever I was around Daniel, even though he was smiling and wearing a tie-dye shirt and sharing marijuana with us and had sort of, you know, hippie, long, golden hair and was sort of working his Jesus-y vibe, I always felt like I didn't want to physically be too close to him. I felt like even though he moved slow, he was capable of suddenly moving very fast. I felt like he could physically grab me at any moment. When Jeanette and Laurel and me couldn't find our Swedish ballerina, topless dancer friend. We all said, oh, maybe she got a boyfriend. But I knew something was wrong. And I knew that Daniel did it. You see, Daniel didn't want to sleep in the park anymore. And she had a rent-stabilized apartment. And he loved her apartment. And when she went away, He even stayed in her apartment for her and watered her plants. I didn't think that was a good idea, but no one listened to me. I knew things that they didn't know. I just did. Well, then a week went by, and then two weeks, and she still didn't answer her phone. And when Jeanette went around to the house, only Daniel was there. Daniel, who used to walk her home from her drum lessons late at night so that she would be safe. Daniel, who used to give them pot and was everybody's friend. But Daniel, who always gave me the creeps, was there. And she wasn't. And she was just gone. And then we heard rumors. And the people in the park said that Daniel had made soup 
for everyone, all of the other homeless people, which I thought was strange because Daniel never had a job and he had lots of pot, but he never had any money. So why would he be giving out food? And then everyone said that Daniel killed our Swedish friend because he wanted the apartment and he told them when he was high. And he was getting high on a lot more than pot. And I believed it. I knew it was true. I knew she was dead. And none of us had reported it because we didn't go to the police. Because back then, if you went to the police, they weren't culturally considered helpful. We were afraid of them. They weren't our friends. It would be our fault. And we didn't trust them. A lot of the police made my spider senses tingle at that time in New York City. Eventually, Daniel was arrested. And when the whole story came out, it turned out that he killed her. My Swedish friend, he cut her up into little pieces and he boiled her and made soup and fed the soup to the homeless people and he put her head and her bones in a Port Authority locker and when they arrested him and searched the house they found the key and then everyone knew where my Swedish friend was and and then everyone believed me Continue, Continue to, breathe. to breathe. The truth is a funny thing, a loved and hated thing. Can you tell the truth? Speak from your guts and honor yourself for telling it despite the reaction of others? Can you hear the truth and respect the person who speaks it? JJ shares a story. After graduating college, I went on a six-week canoe trip um, into northernmost Alaska, above the Arctic Circle, with uh, three friends, and one of the dangers was grizzly bears. So we were told that we'd need guns to protect ourselves, because up there, grizzlies aren't really used to seeing humans because there aren't many up there. So we bought some guns. I bought a 44 Magnum, and the guy in the gun shop said probably actually wouldn't do much good. And everyone made jokes about your best bet is to shoot your friend in the leg and run, or just shoot the gun in the air and try and scare the bear that way. Otherwise, you know, 44 Magnum, even though it's one of the biggest handguns, you're more likely just to injure the bear and anger it. They're ridiculous animals. They can run, you know, 100 meters in, I don't, I don't know. I mean, they can run 40 miles an hour. So you can shoot it through the heart and it'll still get to you, you know. So we went to Alaska with these, these thoughts in our heads and packing our, our guns. So my friends had shotguns. 
We went through the whole trip. We saw grizzlies. There was no problem. We didn't shoot our guns once. There was no, you know, shooting at tin cans or shooting at targets. We were very just respectful of the, it was a beautiful, serene, wild place. And we went through the whole thing without making any noise with our guns, which was, which was good. So get back to New York. And I think having a gun in New York is illegal, but I didn't know what to do. I didn't know. I didn't want to register the gun or I, I so I just put it in my closet. I thought, what harm is it going to do? I'll just put it in my closet and leave it there. And then uh, a friend of mine, actually one of the one of the guys who was on the canoe trip twice a year, he has a, a big gathering up at a house in Vermont, a summer gathering and a winter gathering. I think this was the, the summer gathering. So I thought this would be a good opportunity. I'll just take the gun up to Vermont and kind of bury it in the attic or, you know, literally bury it outside and just not have to worry about it. So... I got it all ready to, to take up. I didn't have a car then, so my friend who, um, who had the house set me up with these two women who were going up for the weekend, and I'd never met them before. They were very nice. Um, they picked me up from my apartment on 27th and 3rd uh, in their rental car, and we made our merry way up to Vermont. I didn't tell them that there was a gun in the, in the trunk. I probably should have done, but I just thought I didn't know them. <laughs> just better that they don't know. We're driving up through Massachusetts and this woman, Charlotte, who was driving, was speeding and got pulled over. My heart started beating and I thought, just stay calm. I was sitting in the back seat, had my sunglasses on, but I was probably hung over. The policeman walks up and he just looked. I don't, I don't know if you've seen the Massachusetts State Police, but they look like Mussolini's personal guard. They've got the sort of the jodhpur flared out trousers with the high leather boots and the funny kind of caps and leather straps and they just look ridiculous but very kind of officious. This guy comes up and I remember it was Officer Venturini on his name tag and he looks in the window and Charlotte the driver was obviously a little bit shaken up and she she didn't feel very comfortable about the whole thing with the policeman and you know, do you, know, do you know how fast you were driving and you were breaking the speed limit? I think he, he gave her a ticket. And then he looks in the back seat. He sees me. He's looking around and he goes, uh, you don't have any uh, weapons or narcotics in the car, do you? And I'm thinking, what the fuck is that? I mean, when have you ever been pulled over where the policeman has asked that question? I mean, I've been pulled over a few times and that's never been a question. I think he saw three... 20-somethings in a rental car heading up to go to a party. I'm sure he probably thought we had pot or something in the car. So my heart is in my mouth. I'm trying to stay, you know, trying to stay calm, pretending that I'm innocent. Totally, you know, I didn't know what was the ramifications would be if he looked in the trunk, but they said, no, officer, you know, nothing. And uh, so that was it, luckily. Officer goes away. We pull out, start driving 55 along the highway. And Vanessa... Um, who's the passenger, turns around and says to me, you know, JJ, I don't take this the wrong way. We don't really know you very well, but we have to ask, you know, do you have any drugs on you? And I said, no, but there's a 44 Magnum in the trunk. Charlotte has basically never spoken to me since then. And Vanessa thought it was the coolest thing. She couldn't wait to get to the destination and have a look at it. So yeah, the gun has uh, safely made its way to Vermont and it's, it's actually still there, it's still up there. Stay true to your guts. And in case you haven't noticed, by guts, we mean your soul. Listen to it. Trust it at all costs. That's what you have to do to keep it alive. In binary code, the binary code represents text or computer processor instructions using the binary number systems, two binary digits, zero and one, a binary code assists a bit string to each symbol or instruction.
<clears throat> be a one and not a zero. Stephanie Hafer is number one in this next piece. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It has been 24 years, maybe actually 28 years, since my last confession, and these are my sins. 28 years is a long time. How are you going to remember all of your sins if you can't even remember what you had for dinner last night? I had lasagna for dinner last night. <laughs> um, you need to come to confession more often, every week. Ugh, it's just so scary and weird. Why do I have to tell this old man what I do? I don't know him, and he doesn't know me. Anyway, he doesn't actually care about me. Uh, okay. Go on. I believe in God, but I also believe in aliens. And the nun in CCD class said that if a baby is about to die, we have to baptize it before it dies so that it will go to heaven. But would God really not let a baby into heaven? Why would he keep it in purgatory? And what is purgatory anyway? Nobody's been able to give me a straight answer on that one. Anyway, the baby would be really scared there. But Sister Mary Teresa said that we could baptize it and all we needed was some water and we would have to say, in the name of the Lord God, you are baptized. And then make a sign of a cross on its forehead and dump some water on its head. And I kind of thought she was making it up and I asked her, what if we didn't have any water? Could we use Windex or even spit? And she said that that would be fine too, but water is best. I don't actually believe what any of you are saying, but I believe in magic and in aliens, and I think Jesus seemed like a really nice man. He would make a good uncle, Uncle Jesus. I think it's really sad what the soldiers did to him by nailing him on the cross. I have a crucifix of him in my room, and he's naked except for a little towel covering his privates. I made him clothes out of modeling clay and a hat instead of the thorny crown, and I just think being nailed to wood is not a very nice way to die, but it looks better than if he were in a guillotine or cut up or something. If he were hung or died in an electric chair, would the church make a big sculpture of that and hang it over the altar? It seems kind of morbid and grotesque, the sculpture of Jesus nailed to the cross. And we are forced to look at it every Sunday morning for an hour. I know it's to show us that he suffered for us, but then why not just have a sculpture of him crying? Seeing Uncle Jesus crying every Sunday would be much more effective, I think. I believe in horoscopes. Uh, I'm a Gemini. And I also believe in reincarnation. And I can't believe that it is a sin to believe in these things. I also believe in science and evolution. I don't pray every day, but I think I talk to God. But I also think that when I'm talking to God that I'm talking to aliens or someone who is just a little smarter than me and invisible. Maybe it's just some part of me that's smarter and invisible. I'm still trying to figure that one out. I have taken God and Jesus' name in vain. It's just that sometimes I get really mad, and that's the best way to express my anger. Also, my parents say my name when they're mad at me in an angry way, and you say that God is within each of us, so isn't that kind of the same thing? Anyway, I guess that takes me to my next sin, which is that I don't always listen to my parents, and they get mad at me. And one time, I was sleepwalking, and I went downstairs and pooped on a kitchen chair. Is that a sin? My dog died a tragic and mysterious death, and I was really sad and mad at God for letting that happen, in case God is in charge of those things. I feel like I'm being forced to listen to lies when I'm in church, and why can't I be a priest if I want to? 
We play church at home, and I'm priest Stephanie, and my friend Amy, who plays piano really well, is organ Amy, and my friend Susie is sister Susie. We give out Nekoe for candy as communion and make tap water holy by wishing and praying to God to please make it holy, please, please, please make it holy. I guess you're going to tell me that that's a sin too. I have killed bugs. I went to the anti-abortion march in Washington, D.C. with the church. I rode in a bus with a lot of other kids and grown-ups from our church. It was really cold, and I love babies, and I wanted to make sure that the babies would be protected, so I went. There were a lot of people with signs there, and they had really gross pictures of bloody babies, and I didn't understand why people would kill babies. And there were other people there, and they were pro-choice, and they were the bad guys. Having a choice is bad. Anyway, the more I grew up, the more I learned about both sides of the story, and I believe having a choice is a good thing. And, wait a second, you, the grown-ups of the Church of the Nativity, you used me. I was a kid, and you dragged me and a bunch of other kids to a protest and had us hold signs that said, Stop abortion now. Ugh. Anyway, I ended up having an abortion. I stopped going to church because it's so boring, and my parents can't make me go anymore, and I'm 18, and I do what I want. I work on Sundays a lot. Is that really a sin? I had sex, and I'm not married. I enjoy sex. I like my body. And why is my body any of your business? Why do I need to tell you if I masturbate? Do you masturbate? But since that's on the list of sins, I'll tell you that I've been masturbating since I was little. Like, really little. Like a lot of kids do. I would hump my stuffed bear, and I would have tiny little orgasms. My behavior was a normal and healthy response to having genitalia. I do not think it is a sin, and I think you are a creep if you think my sexuality is any of your business. What I do with my body is my business, and what I choose to talk about is my choice. There's that word again that you don't like. Go on. I've been envious, unkind, proud, revengeful, jealous, hateful, even to those I love the most. I've lied, I've gossiped, I've been lazy. I've abused alcohol and tried lots of drugs. These are all sins, and I am a sinner. I stole an orange from the grocery store in high school and a shirt and pants in college on a dare. I've been sexually assaulted by a teacher at my high school. Was that my fault? He was a creep too, thinking he had some control over my body. I've been roofied by a co-worker, a bartender at the restaurant I worked in at Manhattan. Wait, that wasn't my fault either. I just quit the job so I would never have to see him again. Another creep. You've just heard Carla Taylor, Jay Bone, Anna Ramirez, Larrabee, J.J. Hillwood, and Stephanie Hafer. Special thanks to Ryan Eggensberger. Ripple Puddle is produced by myself, Stephanie Hafer, and Carla Taylor. Theme music by Stephanie Hafer. Hot Tips theme by Carla Taylor and Broke for Free. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to check out our website, www.ripplepuddle.com, where you can find more information about our next episode. We'd also love to hear from you. Yes, you. If you have a story to share, email us at ripplepuddle at gmail.com or call us at 313-389-6013. Here's a teaser for episode four, Superpowers, due out February 2nd. Hello. I'm a five foot four, female, petite Latina, brown hair, brown eyes with a curvy frame. I enjoy dancing, existential philosophy, poetry, and toilet humor. My superpowers are dynamic energy formation deliverables through alchemy dispensation to those in need. 
I can effortlessly make the grim funny and the funny grim, and I have the gift of dishwasher loading, looking for a life force who can stay out of the way of my dishwasher. Hey, all you superheroes out there. I'm average height, average weight, with average brown hair, and average across the board. I enjoy flying in my dreams, long walks and conversations, and discovering something new. My superpowers dreaming of things before they happen. I'm looking for that special someone who can defy gravity and really fly. Come save the world with us for episode four, Superpowers, February 2nd, 2015. This and much more. This is Uncle Yisos. Come on in. The water is great. <laughs>